everyone. This is Charlie Levine, and you are listening to the Angler's Journal Podcast, brought to you by Angler's Journal Magazine. If you're looking for a different fishing magazine that isn't just full of the same old, same old stuff that actually writes some in-depth stories about the people and places and boats and all the cool stuff that makes fishing great, check out anglersjournal.com and pick up a subscription. The Angler's Journal Podcast is brought to you by Atlantis Marine Finance. You know, Myself, I just unloaded my boat, and I'm without a boat for the first time in like 15 years. And I'm already looking around. I got ideas. I think a few different things I want to purchase or, you know, future shopping as it is. But when it comes time to do it, I'm going to need to finance that boat. And Atlantis Marine Finance is a great option. They've got a lot of experience. They've got a team of industry pros, actual boat owners. They have the knowledge and resources to help you get on the water So if you're looking to purchase a new boat or a used boat or even a project boat, Atlantis Marine Finance will give you all the educational resources you need to make a good decision and help you down that path to your next boat purchase. For more information, visit AtlantisMarineFinance.com and good luck. Get out there and get that boat. Hey, everyone. This is Charlie Levine, the editor-in-chief of Angler's Journal Magazine, and you are listening to the Angler's Journal Podcast. Uh, today is really cool. We've got uh, someone who's probably got more miles of water underneath their hull than just about anybody we've ever talked to. Uh, without further ado, Mr. Chris Fisher from Osearch Shark Tagging Expeditions. How are you, man? I'm good. I'm good, Charlie. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure to see you. You know, it's it had been a while and we kind of bumped into each other at the Costa event there in Jupiter and um Coast yeah. of days. Yeah, that was nice to get back together again after all these years of kind of, you know, not being, it was just great to see everybody. Been too Absolutely. long. Yeah. They, and they sure know how to put on a fun event. That was, that yeah, was, was great. Good the fishing was good. Um, the entertainment was fun. And just most of the people that were there was just fantastic. Yeah. It was great to reconnect. Um, but I guess I first got to know you when you had the Offshore Adventures show back in yeah. like the early 2000s and you were, cruising around the Pacific and I fell in love with how you guys always talked about the food and the culture and all the stuff on all the places you went to. And I was wondering if, if that was your first sort of foray into TV work or how that all happened. Yeah. So, you know, it, it was, you know, life really evolves. Right. And I think, you know, one thing my dad said to me when I was young, he's like, Hey, Chris, a few times in your life, the opportunity bus is going to come by and you, you know, you get to choose whether or not to jump on. And, uh, so it may never come around the corner again, you know, so take it seriously. So there was a time uh, in the around 90, late 97 where we had a small family business we'd started when I was young and it was sold. And I thought I was going to work there my whole life. I was 29 years old and it, it wasn't enough to stop working, but it was enough to kind of think about what you were passionate about and, and try to chart a course for the rest of your life and have a little bit of money to try to maybe get something going. Um, and so, uh, I had grown up in Louisville, Kentucky, chasing fish and frogs around the woods. And my passion was always the water. You know, I was the kid who was sticking bluegill in every neighborhood pond and bass in every neighborhood pond and getting dropped off at creeks off the highway. And my mom would pick me up five miles down the Creek at another bridge and really fell in love with being deeply connected to nature. I think, you know, and, and, and the way I was spending my time in nature was fishing and on and around the water. And that, that just, the passion ran deep. And then I never really talk about this, but my parents, they were amazing. Um, 
not only from like the philanthropic side and my mom on the serve side, um, but uh, when I was in fourth grade, they picked me up in an RV out in Louisville, Kentucky, the day after fourth grade ended. And we drove all the way to Alaska and back and got back the day before fifth grade started. Holy crap. <laughs> and we drove the Alaskan highway, you know, the 1200 mile gravel road. And all I did was fish, 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 especially out in Alaska because it was light all night. And my parents totally enabled, like every campsite was next to a river, every, you know, and so it was on. And, and I, I really think, um, I really, I feel like uh, that trip really changed me. Um, Sounds like a pretty wild adventure. Yeah. And then, you know, from then on, we were camping whenever we could on holidays and they were always making the water accessible. So anyway, it, the, the the thirst for exploration and the desire to see what was around the corner, that type of thing was deeply enrooted by them along with anything's possible, you know, nothing is impossible. And, you know, and it, it always feels better to help other people than just to help yourself. That was kind of the dinner table conversation. So super entrepreneurial, went to school at IU and the National University of Singapore studying international entrepreneurship, focusing on Asia and the Pacific Rim, and then actually went and worked over there for about a half a dozen years, worked all over the world for our little family business. We made beverage equipment for Coke and Pepsi, and they were everywhere. So you had to kind sure. of support them everywhere. And so in 97, my, my older brothers and dad, they sold the business. And so I started thinking about what I was going to do. And this is a true story, man. I was, I was on uh, um, uh, I was living in Newport Beach, California at the time in the early 90s when it was awesome. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I started spending time on the water when I had that break just to reflect on what I wanted to do for a couple of months before I got going at something. And I started to notice it didn't feel like people were really connected to the ocean, like even my peers. And I was living near the water, you know, and we weren't talking about what was going on on the water. It wasn't like now, you know, where it's the decade of the ocean and ocean plastics and everybody's all about it. I mean, which is awesome, but there's been a lot of groups and a lot of people who've been pushing since like 2000 on these issues. And finally the critical squares scale of awareness of all those good groups and organizations, along with some great content on BBC and other kind of got it over the tipping point, you know? And, uh, I was wondering why people weren't really interested in the ocean in the late 90s and early 2000s. And so um, I thought back on my life, you know, Cousteau was my hero. I loved Cousteau. I was crazed. I watched it all when I was little. And then Cousteau had passed. And there was no plan, you know, for that to keep going after him. And, um, and the ocean lost its voice at scale, you know, at like scale, at global scale. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I was young enough and dumb enough at the time I said, and I said, okay, well, here's the big picture. Uh, I'm going to pour the world's oceans into people's lives at a scale unseen since Cousteau. That was like, that was like the noble goal. I just thought like, it's like, nobody's got their eye on the ball here. And so at least at scale, there was like talking to normal people about the ocean in a normal centrist way, you know, you know, that people could relate to and get. And so, so I started Offshore Adventures and, and the true story of that is I actually signed up to learn. I didn't know how to make TV, but again, I came from the super entrepreneurial family. So 
I, in order to figure it out, I went and I did a, I did one year on the BXRL. I don't know if you remember that old, Nor, yeah, old Norm Fist, Isaac, yeah, Norm, Norm and Darren, Derek Isaac. And so I went down, I did one season of that and I was like, okay. And I met this guy on a flight home from one of the last events, this guy named Rich, Rich Christensen, this lovely human being. And he was shooting. And I said, man, you know, this is interesting. This is cool. But I think I'd like to do something on our own because I feel like what we do on the water and our lifestyle on the water can relate a lot more to like families and regular people because we like to go out and we fish and we free dive and we eat food and we visit the place and like experience all the ocean. It's not just about catching the big one. You know what I mean? Like, come on. 100%. You know, and so... uh, and so we started Offshore Adventures and Rich said, I'll shoot it. And we started a, a little business together and it started from there. And that became Offshore Adventures, which was really just a representation of the life we were um, starting to live down there in that region with Captain Brett McBride and this chef named David Trailer, most gifted chef I've ever, ever, just unbelievable gifted chef. If you ever get a chance to eat a meal from David Trailer, fly to eat it. <laughs> uh so and Brett also with and Brett also with this um, incredible gift as a waterman, as a free diver, as an explorer, having worked all up and down Baja and the Sea of Cortez. So when we went fishing, you know, we went for two weeks. You know, we didn't come back. It was kind of that California yacht fisher style, family style, or you go to Catalina for the weekend and fish and kind of dive and live the life. And so. Offshore Adventures was really just, I think, what Brett McBride and David Trailer introduced me uh, to at the time. Um, and I fell passionately in love with freediving and with that whole kind of exploration and kind of being out there versus coming in and out every day. And, yeah. and, uh, and, and that's really what Offshore Adventures was. And I was inspired a little bit, too, because um, I got to be honest with you, the whole catch and release, we go in these waves of things and you know, people were pushing catch and release so hard at the time. And this would have been like the late nineties because they were trying to get people motivated, but it had gone a bit too far where it almost seemed like it, it, it's wait, wait, it's perfectly fine to go out and catch a couple of fish for your family and then let the rest go. But if we're going to take a fish, let's honor the beast. Yeah. Let's try to eat it in the most perfect way it can be consumed. And that's why I think a lot of people fell in love with the show because we'd be like, okay, if you catch this type of fish, but first kill and gut it, pack it on ice until tomorrow. Right. And then the next day you bring it out and you're like, look, look at how this cuts. Here's how you cut it. It cuts so much cleaner. Look at the texture. It's all relaxed on the bone. And then you eat it and it eats. It's way better. And people really got in at the time. I mean, we were really, I know it's, it wasn't really our thing, but we were kind of the first catch and cook. Well, and that whole food network momentum and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And then we had cooked. So that this was back in the late nineties though. Right. Then it began. Then, and then my ex-wife, Melissa, I got to give her credit. She was really one of the first women in the outdoor space. And so she's out there fishing and free diving, you know, and then it kind of became all the rave after that, It became, which is great, you know, um, and various other sports, hunting and everything else. Um, so it was really uh, evolved. It was our life and it was a new way to show the ocean. And it was about um, where it takes you and the people you see and, and, and its bounty and ultimately having the utmost respect to try to enjoy it in a way that ensures it's robust for our children, you know, because, you know, 
I got a lot into my own personal relationship with the ocean. Like, am I a taker? Am I a giver? Or is my relationship in balance with the ocean? You know, I don't think people pause enough and really think about and reflect on their own personal relationship with the body of water they hang out on. Are you just a taker? Are you like out there every time just partying, having fun, fishing, doing whatever? Or, or do you have a nice balanced relationship with that body of water? And you do that a lot, but you also take some time out to improve it, to love up on it, yes. you know? And so you have balance. That's the only relationships that succeed, you know? So I began to really reflect on that a lot when I started to have kids and that that's impacted our journey. But yeah, Offshore Adventures was, you know, Look, man, pivoting to jump on a ship and go catch white sharks is not like a really like a step up when you're cruising around the Pacific coast between Alaska and Panama on a yacht fisher with a gourmet chef, you know, and right. free well, diving and fish. But it had to be done. And that's another story. Yeah. Well, correct me if I'm wrong. So did you buy the crabber? So you guys run this big 126 foot converted crabbing boat. Um because I feel that like was after well that it, during offshore adventures it was at seventy two Elliot the yacht fisher called the Go Fish right but then you had the Cabo right that's the and I but then it, I, in October of ninety seven right before the stock market crashed this almost crushed me I bought the ship okay and then I had the ship and I was trying to unload the other boat but then the, everything crashed and I like a month after I bought the ship and I had to like leverage and endure everything I could to just make it through. Right. But like everybody else, everybody else, you know? So, um, yeah. So then I tried, what really happened with offshore adventures was we were, we bought, I bought the ship because we wanted to go. Like I really, my dream was to complete Zane Gray's, uh, the voyages he did not complete. Oh God. That would and, go, and go fish the last virgin seas and really document mothership that. Operation. Yeah. With the mothership anywhere, anytime. Right massive you know support you can go anywhere you know and so i couldn't uh, i couldn't sell it you know we were i was basically paying for the boat by making offshore adventures and living the life and kind of like so many people in the space do and um uh the ship was far more expensive to run and so while we were still doing offshore adventures the last couple of years we did it on the ship so you're right we pivoted over and it was called the ocean Okay. And then, the, and then the 45 Cabo Express was the go fish. The go like fish. F I S C H. Which yeah, right. right. <laughs> like the, like the other boat. Right. Yeah. And so, uh, we were talking about the science of fishing and things like this, and I couldn't really sell it. And in the meantime, around 2007, well, still while we're making offshore adventures, a scientist came to me and he, and because while we were making offshore adventures, what I quickly learned out, I joined the board of the Billfish Foundation in the early 2000s and then was uh, going to these meetings where the scientists would tell us what they were learning from their billfish tagging programs. And, you know, we were spending a lot of time on the water. I mean, offshore adventures was like 12, 10 day trips a year, or 10, 10 day trips a year, or 14 day trips a year. And, uh, and um, we, we, what I was hearing, well, it wasn't really syncing up. And I learned quickly from the scientists, they're tasked with this impossible chore, right? They have to write these peer reviewed papers so that we can leverage them for management, but they have no boats, no money, and don't know how to catch what they study. The and, they're kind of, and, and they're kind of sent out there on their own with like an intern and like an 18 foot or 20 foot whaler. Yeah. And we're talking about the future abundance 
of our planet. Yeah, that, that. And so I started to see they were stuck. They're all stuck as the data deficit. They don't have enough data to manage, right? So what I started doing then when I was looking offshore adventures is I would show, I would throw a scientist into a bunk and then we would take them out. We would do our show. Then they would come out and do their science and let it go. Yeah. And I started to enjoy the do good part of it more than the fishing part of it, like helping all these scientists. And so while we were helping these scientists who cover studied black marlin or sailfish or whatever, um, they came to me and started talking to me about this shark problem we're having. It was around 2006. And they said, man, we're down to 9% of our large sharks. And if we don't fix the large shark thing, none of these billfish are going to be here. Our work won't matter because the system just implodes without a healthy level of sharks. They're the system managers, right? They're the balance keeper, the apex predator. They are the wolf, the lion, you know, and it's not so much how much they eat. It's just that their mere presence cruising around the ocean changes the behavior of everything and it falls in line. So things don't overexploit one level or another of the food web. Mm. And I was like, well, who's this, who's helping the shark people, you know, like, so surely somebody's doing for them like what I'm doing for you here in on the Hannibal Bank, you know, or whatever. They're like, man, they're so big. We've just poking at them. We got all these primitive methods. We don't have the capacity to figure out where they're mating, where they're giving birth, how the nursery expands, what they eat, so on and so forth. And we're down to 9% of them. And if we don't turn it around, the, the, the abundance of the ocean is going to plummet. We've already seen it in areas where the sharks are eliminated. There's just not, there's not even birds. There's no bait. Um, and so and I'm, most people, I think, understand how that works. You know, for example, like on a reef, if there's no sharks, all the little fish that pick at the reef, they pick at it all the time. And then the reef dies. When a shark is there, just the mere presence, it doesn't eat that many of those little reef fish, but they all got to hide half the day. So they can only come out and eat at night. So then the reef doesn't die because it can grow. There's not too much pressure on the reef. Wow. You know, just the shark's presence changes the behavior of everything. Like envision a lion walking through Africa and everything knows it's there and shapes up, sure. right? And so, and so uh, they, they literally said like, and I said, I said, look, I'm a simple guy from Kentucky. I said, did you just say if there's no big sharks, there's no fish sandwiches for my grandkids? He's like, yeah, if we don't figure out the big sharks, there's no fish sandwiches for anybody's grandkid. Scary. And I was kind of like, and then I looked around and, you know, we'd gotten good at letting big things go and letting them alive for smart people. We were already helping them. Started to earn a little bit of trust in the academic space because this big disconnect between the practical and the academic or the fisherman and the scientist, right? We were fishermen. And started to build some trust there across that void. And um, they came to me and they said, uh, this is a problem. And I said, okay, do you, they said, do you think you can get one of those giant sharks in the lift so that we can use the latest technology and, and ultrasound and blood and get all the stuff we've never been able to do. And I actually called Brett and I asked him, I'm like, Brett, do you think you can get one of these giant sharks on the lift? And you oh, got to really jump that. <laughs> no, no, no. It was the total opposite, man. You got to realize, yeah. I mean, sure, dude, we were spending our time baiting and switching black marlin on the Hannibal Bank, like trying to catch granders, you know, 800 pounds, you know, like to go sit around and like wait for a shark to come by. It was like the ultimate downgrade in like angling. You know what I mean? It's just like, so he was like, oh, God, yeah, Chris, I could do that, but I don't want to do that. I'm like, look, man, this guy says fish sandwiches, grandkids, you know, I think we got to try to help them. If not us, I really love, if not us, then who? Like, they're not going to get it done. 
And so we went out there in 2007 and there was no plan. I, I, there was no plan. I literally went out and just helped the guy. We got one out. We did it. Was this the trip to Guadalupe Island? Yeah, to, in fall of 2007. Which, but I, I think people explain like what entailed that trip though. I mean, that is not like an easy place to get to or to pull this off. I mean, yeah, no. I mean, we first of all, everyone's telling us it's impossible. People are some people are pissed because sharks are people too, you know. And uh, and and we're like, look, we're trying to help all the sharks by touching a few here. The science guys asked for our help, man. We're just trying to help. We're just trying to help. <laughs> they got no boats, no money, and they don't know how to catch. We know how to catch. We got a boat. We got a little bit of money. You know, and uh, so we, um, that was wild trip. I mean, you know, we I remember heading out there and well, I'm going to get emotional here. I haven't thought about this at this in depth in a long time. Well, I, I respect the hell out of you. Too. We didn't know what was going to happen, man. No, and you bankrolled that thing, and you yeah, were just yeah. saying there was all that crazy turmoil, and you didn't know if you were going to keep the boat, and you guys just rolled the dice. I mean, it's yeah, crazy, yeah, crazy and, and we, and we didn't really, uh, you know, we just took a guy's a couple of buddies out with cameras. We didn't shoot it. We didn't have any plan on doing anything in the shark space. I was still trying to do the Zane Gray thing. You know, I wanted to do that. That's what was my dream. And, uh, and so we kept doing that. And then he asked us to come help him again in 2008. And that year, I think we got six. And the first year we got one. And then, and then I couldn't sell it. I was going to lose the boat, lose my house, lose everything. And, and, and it was kind of like, well, maybe this do-good thing on the sharks could be like the, the path. And, you know, we were having no success, like trying to be the ESPN outdoors TV producer, like talking to National Geographic or the Discovery Channel because they were filmmakers, ah. <laughs> you, know, you know, and we make outdoor TV, you know. And so, so I went out and hired uh, one of the executive producers of Blue Planet and ask her to see if she could put a teaser reel from the simple stuff that we had together. And, you know, the people who wouldn't take my call, her name was Maureen Lemire. And uh, the people who wouldn't make, take my call, you know, picked up the phone when Maureen called and she got a meeting. And I remember we made a reel and I was down to about 90 days of cash and I was just going to be wiped out because the ship cost so much just tying up the dock. And I remember sleeping in her basement because I didn't want to pay for a hotel room in DC and watching that teaser reel and knowing and not, knowing that if I didn't sell it the next day at National Geographic, like on the spot or Discovery, we had meetings with both the next day. It was kind of over. Wow. And uh, Maureen got us the meetings and we went in. I met with Clark Bunning at the Discovery Channel and Steve Burns at the National Geographic Channel, two just amazing guys. And uh, they, they both wanted it. And then it was about how fast could we put the deal together so I could get some cash flowing and how long could I bridge before I was like completely just wiped out. Right. So, and that, that, um, and it, and we, and we made it through, you know? Yeah, no. And it's amazing to me because the boat having been set up to lift the Cabo up on yeah. That, yeah. your deck system there. I mean, it was sort of like happenstance or what have you. It was probably yeah. And you guys figured out how to do this, which no one has ever done what you guys do to get these giant, multi-grander animals. Oh, yeah. Um, maybe yeah, and it's not, it's, it's not, yeah, and it's, it's not like fishing, like, like we are used to angling, you know, it's not that type of experience. It's, there's no rush. There's, there's not that much, there's not really excitement. It's, uh, first of all, you're trying to catch this thing perfectly every time. So, 
we give up tons of bites, right? Because our gear is heavy and the way we have it rigged, like we're only going to get them in the corner of the mouth or we're not going to get them. And we're willing to miss 20 or 30% of our bites for that. Because, you know, you can't just go around the world doing research and end up having problems with white sharks like that. You know, that's not the idea is to help them out. And so we give up a lot, we, you know, but when we get them, we get them, boom, you know, and then uh, the scientists want them in the cradle with almost no stress up. So we're trying to get them quick, you know, like right now he'll catch a 4,000 pound white shark in 40 minutes, a thousand pound white shark in eight minutes. And so the thing is about it is, is we're not really catching them. No, we're, it's, we're like quickly training them. It's so more, like it's walk more, walk them over, right? With the- yeah. It's more like teaching a dog how to heal or breaking a horse a little bit. It's not really like fishing at all. Uh, so I would say we really quickly train sharks versus catching sharks. Um, and Brett's been able to work that. That's the power of bringing like the practice, the world-class practical, like a Brett McBride together with a world-class academic team. Cause you know, I remember this meeting happened in 2013. We just caught Lydia after Mary Lee had swam from Cape Cod down to Jacksonville beach, which blew everyone's mind. And people were like, there's no white sharks in Florida. And I'm like, well, there's one under the, under the pier in Jacksonville. <laughs> and so we followed her down there and then we caught Lydia right in front of the Mayport poles at the St. John's river, like right there on the beach. And, uh, and Brett just said, Hey, Chris, I want to talk to some of the scientists. And Dr. Chris Dold was there along with a group, a whole group of scientists. He's the, number one chief animal guy at SeaWorld, right? And uh, he's a lovely human. And uh, I said, hey, Chris, can you get a couple of your peoples around and gather up some scientists? Captain Brett, we want to talk to you about some things. And so Brett starts telling this story. He's like, if I see these animals, it's just like when I was trying to catch big black marlin, you know, that can kind of just dig in and you can't get them in. He's like, if I can get in front of them and get them in a lead, they got no breaks, right? So if I can get in front of them and put a lot of pressure on them, it seems like these animals will just give up and go where I can almost walk them around like on a loose leash. And the scientists are like, oh yeah, that's called learned helplessness. All sharks have that condition. If they realize their best course of action is to survive, is to give up, they will give up. And they said, but in order to do that, you kind of have to overwhelm them so they know they can't get away. And their best option is to give up. And so when you put that sort of information in the mind of a guy like Brett McBride, everything changes, right? And so the level of science, I think people don't understand every piece of gear he's made by hand. You know, you can't buy it, right? Um, It's specifically made for what he's so old school. He still makes our own lines, you know, and all that sort of stuff. And he teaches all the young guys how to make the lines, right? We don't cut lines. We make lines as long as we need them to be. And that's that kind of old school San Diego tuna long range fleet he grew up on. He was doing that from eight years old all, all summer long in Mexico, right? He's beast from that, you know, that landing down there in San Diego, the big long range tuna fleet. And, uh, and um, so I started to see, wow, like it's hugely powerful bringing the practical and the academic together, you know, and how, how could we expect to create an abundant future for the ocean if the practical and the academic aren't together in every space on the ocean and, and in fact, on land, right? And, and the problem was the, the, the fishermen, the scientists, you know, is this way and the scientists, the fishermen is that way. And I started getting together, I'd just be like, fish sandwiches. You want your grandkid to eat a fish sandwich? Knock it off. No time. That's so you to do though either boy I, i'm sure you had to 
kind of it took a number of years, but then everybody gets it, man. Like everybody, at least at Osearch, what was hugely disruptive in the space is now like the normal way and flourishing, right? Uh, but it does, you know, a couple things kind of came out to me, you know, along that journey. It's like I completely don't understand why the recreational fishing community is not completely leading the way toward global ocean abundance. I think more so than academia. I mean, they're out there every day. They love it the most. They're paying for it through taxes and fees and other things, and they go out and enjoy it, but then they're not involved. And then you got this separate group of academics that never get on the water, but have to write these papers. Yeah. You know? And so, like, why aren't our leading companies in the industry, in the recreational fishing space, or anybody who sells anything around the water, like leading? where the research is going and who's collecting the data. And like, you think about like the, our partners, when you think about a Yeti or a Costa, you know, a sea world, these kind of companies, you know, like if a scientist needed to do a bonefish study or any sort of study anywhere, I could call Costa and be like, who's the man on Sanibel, <laughs> you know, or I could call Yeti and be like, who's the person in Louisiana? You know, and we could be matching up like world-class anglers with world-class academics to get world-class data sets now. Yeah. And it's all disconnected, right? And so I'm trying to, number one, prove how much more efficient it is by doing stuff that's never been done before, just by bringing the practical and the academic together on a common vision with a selfless disposition. Great-grandchildren first. It's no more time for silliness, you know? And... uh and I'm hoping as our brand emerges and I continue to, uh, you know, evolve and build out our scale and capacity of O-Search, that we're going to be able to have more influence in the global, over global ocean conversation because of the white shark thing, man. We're the world's leader in the white shark space. Like everyone watches. we got billions of impressions a year. You know, it's yeah, like a white, yeah, the white shark space is crazy. Uh, and so anyway, I, I, I freestyle with you because I'm so excited to talk to someone from the space where we came from and like the opportunity that that space has in creating the abundant future because they have the component that the scientists are all stuck. They have it. And if we just plug it together, like phew, the rate of learning radically escalates. Yeah, I think, you know, the probably the best researchers in that space love to be on the water, whether they're anglers or sailors or whatever. Totally. And the best fishermen learn the environment. They know the tides. They know the water yeah. quality. They know all this stuff. And what you're saying makes a lot of sense. And and I think it'd, it'd be well received. And it seems to be sort of going that way, but it's it's a slow burn. I think it is, you know, like our, I didn't mention Yamaha or other partner, like they're, they're now working with us more on like their nonprofit than they are with they're, their, with their involved. engines. Right. Right. But if you think about what brands can lead us, these are the kind of brands that could rise up, really organize how we're going to approach connecting the world-class practical and academic together to make sure that their businesses exist in 50 or a hundred years. Like it's in their own yeah. best interest. Right. And then all you do in today's world is create content around that. And that is your marketing campaign. Cause, yeah. <laughs> because it, everyone's a social, you know, a conscious consumer these days, it's all about having the social license to operate. So the do good becomes the branding campaign, which ultimately ends up in more abundance, which then is the, the company's 50 year plan to have security to exist in a market. So and I'm learning, I, and learning and learning and learning. And I would imagine, I mean, you guys have done like 40 something expeditions now, 
right? 44, yeah, we start our 45th next month. And it tagged a buttload of fish, big, big females, males, and, and you have the tracking website, which I totally went down a wormhole on this morning. It was looking at all these sharks and all the miles they've gone. And, you know, I live mm -hmm. in Florida, so I was checking out all these, you know, 700 pounders that are hanging out around here. And um, I think through that education and all the stuff you're learning, you're passing it on. But I mean, what are some of the highlights you've seen over the these expeditions? I think the real highlight is right now. So there's nine great white shark populations around the world. And these, all of these populations are somewhat separated. There's not a lot of crossover, right? And so we know that if you can solve the life history puzzle of these nine, nine populations and you can manage your white sharks to abundance, you're moving the region to abundance. So, cause they are the balance keeper, right? The system manager. It has never been done where the life history has been fully described. So we are fully describing the life history of the white shark off the East coast of the United States. This next expedition is to nail down the mating site. It's the last piece of the puzzle. And so, um, you know, check one out of nine done. If we can move around the world and solve the other eight, those regions will have the data set to move their systems toward abundance. So when you look in the highlights and you step back over the years, I'll never forget the first ones at Guadalupe, like the very first one, because everyone said it was impossible. We were literally going 300 miles off the beach into an ocean that can be nasty on the way to try to catch giant things and do, and you know, and we didn't know what was going to happen. So, you know, that lessons from the dinner table, you know, Chris, nothing's impossible. Just keep inching forward and inches a cinch, yard is hard. Just keep inching forward. And, you know, anything's possible if you don't care who gets the credit. And, uh, I remember just, I remember the boat ride out and I don't remember many boat rides because there's been a lot of them. And, uh, and then we got one and we proved it was possible. And then there was room to, um, you know, improve from there. So I'll never forget that. And then, uh, oh, you know, we've had so many amazing trips in so many different special places. Um, seeing and working on Ningaloo Reef in Northwest Australia, the most pristine body of water I've ever been on by far. I think it's like what the Great Barrier Reef must have been like 50 or 80 years ago. Um, but when we come back into the shark space, you know, uh, the real thing I think is like the Mary Lee, the tagging of Mary Lee, you know, which happened in the fall of 2012. We had just come from Africa. We tagged 40 white sharks down in South Africa. The show had been canceled you know, cause we did 30 hours on national geographic after offshore adventures, we did shark men. And then we did 10 hours on the history channel and I was selling the TV to fund the ship. And then I give the ship to the scientists cause ship costs a couple million bucks a year, the whole operation. And so I was making TV to pay for the ship to give it away. And I, and, uh, and I'd lost my funding source, my cash flow. And so I had about a half a million bucks left from making the show. And I remember thinking to myself, like, well, you know, I, if I can't get some cash flow going here in 90 or 120 days or so, you know, it's like crash and burn, house, everything, you know, but whatever. And this, when you think you're going to lose all your shit, the first time is really scary. But then after that, it's not at all. And then uh, um, you always figure something out. Everybody does. And... Um, I said, well, this, this guy named Greg Scomel had said, hey, man, we're starting to see white sharks pop up in the Cape. Okay, he's from Massachusetts. Yeah, and he's like, it would be unbelievable if you could help us get some, because they were running around, most of these guys are running around poking, you know, 
it's a very like primitive method poking things in sharks you just really can't get the data sets you need to really there's no not much leverageable data for management you know it doesn't tell you what they're doing it tells you where they are but you got to understand what they're doing where they are if you really want to help them out and um so i said okay we'll come so we went up there and, and i didn't have a gig anymore so i remember I had just started the global shark tracker, which freaked people out, showing people where the sharks went. And it wasn't that people saw where the sharks had went. It was the science community was pissed at me for open sourcing the data. See, I don't get that, but whatever. So anyway, that's another conversation. So we had to disrupt the concept of the ownership of data. It's the first time I've ever had to fight to own anything so I could give it away. Uh, anyway, it, we worked it out. And I've got the global shark tracker up. So now people are tracking them in real time. And... Um, we rolled up there and we caught this first shark named Jeannie and named her after Jeannie Clark, one of the founders there at Moat Marine Laboratories out of Sarasota, you know, legend. And then we named the second one and it was near the end of the trip. And I, uh, you know, I named it Mary Lee because I thought it was the last white shark we would ever touch. I was literally like making plans with my dad on how I was going to unwind everything and trying to hold it together and still do something great. And, and I was still had some pitches out there. I was trying to get people, you know, sell some corporate sponsorships and so forth. And we got Mary Lee and I named Mary Lee after my mom, the last shark I ever thought I would work up. And, and then when we parked the ship there in um, New Bedford, I took a picture of the ship. I, the only time I've ever done that. I thought when I drove away, I didn't think I'd ever see it again. And um, Mary Lee proceeded to swim down the East coast of the United States and like light it up. man. I mean, she was 4,000 pound female and she loved the beach and she loved rivers and she loved inlets and she loved bays and she was poking her nose in everywhere. And I remember on that trip, since we didn't, when we were doing the show, they wouldn't let us share what was going on in real time because they wanted people to have to watch it on the network later. Okay. So we weren't able to engage with the community. People were like, what's going on on that boat out there on my sharks? And we, you know, we couldn't really even engage. Cause so I remember when we went to Cape Cod, I was like, look, man, if we want to hold on to it, we got to give it away. We got to give away everything. We're going to give away the data. We're going to give away the content We're it's going to take us all in the end anyway, you know? And, and, and so, and so we did that and everyone came. And like the news networks came, we were never allowed to have the news out when you're making a TV show to include the people in real time, like what's going on. And we got Mary Lee and they covered it. And then everywhere she went, every outlet wanted to cover the 4,000 pound white shark named Mary Lee off their coast. And she kind of went viral, ended up with like 160,000 Twitter followers and was driving like $180 million worth of earned media a year. That's wild. And, and so we started to see, oh, another path, because we were the only people with the content. And when the earned media wanted a piece of content, we would give it to them, but we could just give them brand integrated content. Yeah, but now you so we could leverage the We could leverage the press as our content distributor and integrate our sponsors because we had the content and our work and the Sharks were newsmakers. Yeah, and it's... So let's talk a second about the tags you guys use, just so the listeners understand, because like you're talking with Billfish, a lot of tags are just spaghetti tags, which you get like a 1% return rate on those. And then there's satellite tags, which we put on Billfish, but you guys are putting some like computers on these things. Yeah, and we'll use that one satellite tag for the purpose of understanding the, so there's the, we'd use the same thing as you see on the billfish, but we just use it for their up and down because it's not very good for where they go. 
And when they come out of the surface, when they're dorsal, it yeah, that's the that's a different tag, right? That's the spot tag that you mount on their fin. Okay. Right. The spot tag is the one everyone follows on the tracker. Four different types of tags. The spot tracker, the spot tag is what everyone engages with and what they follow and what they see on the tracker and in the news and so forth. Every time the shark puts its fin out of the water for about five years, if it's up for long enough, we'll get a location and that pings right through the satellite into the global shark tracker, the OSEARCH app or at OSEARCH.org where people can follow them all in real time. And then we use the same type of tag, the pop-off satellite tag you're talking about, because this gives you either up and down momentum, uh, up and down movements. You know, and then you can lay that on where they are and then they're going up and down. Oh, what are they doing while they go up and down? And then um, the third one is an internal acoustic tag. We make an excision and we insert it. And then it's got a 10-year battery. So that, that then has to swim by a receiver somewhere within a few hundred yards of a receiver. And it'll just pick up the presence of that shark. Most of that is just logged and they get it later, but they do have some real-time acoustic stuff now. And then... Uh, the fourth one is this biologgers. These are the computers that we're putting on the animals. We do this with Dr. Nigel Hussey and his team out of the University of Windsor. These things will have accelerometers in her, so you're getting tail beats and attitude and all that sort of stuff. They'll have a sonar in it where they're sonaring to see what the shark is seeing so they can pick up different species of fish and identify them through their sonar. Um, and then occasionally they'll swap out the sonar for a camera. Um, but most of the time it's sonar. So these are like computers, like you said, this is more the other tags, you put them together and you got six or $7,000 worth of tags on the animal. You throw this thing on top, it jumps up to like 20, right? So you're sending these animals out with like $20,000 worth of tags on them. The, the, the bio loggers, the big expensive one can only stay on for a day or two because it collects so much data, it runs out of memory, right? So then you got to pop off and you got to go collect it. So you got to be real careful where you are and when you put it out on an animal that can swim 100 to 150 miles a day because two days from now can be far, far away. Um, so yeah, the, the suite of, it's all the most modern, latest stuff, gathering the maximum amount of data in the least amount of time, right? That's the idea. The idea is, okay, this is a fundamental puzzle to solve for ocean abundance. How do we collect all the data we need to collect touching the fewest amount of animals and, and collect the data and publish? Okay. You know, and, and and so that's why now we have 49 scientists doing 25 research projects on every animal we touch from 25 different research institutions. How does the that tracking number, is just one of them. How does that number differ from when you got started, the number of research? First trip we went out, there was one. Yeah, that's that's amazing. And then we tried to, we said, hey, we need more. And he's like, no, we're not going to collaborate. Then I got then I got in touch with a guy named Pete Klimley, another science legend out of Cal, Cal Davis. And he built a nice team with uh, Mauricio Hoyos, who's a great guy and a great scientist down there, was at Guadalupe and the Riviahejos, and uh, Alex Hearns and a couple guys. And then we assembled like a little five-person team, mostly led by UC Davis. And that was cool. It worked, right? And that was at the Riviahejos. This is a great story. You know, the Riviahejos Park there, the, the islands just south of Cabo, about 200 miles uh, they turned it into a marine park and we spent a lot of offshore adventures there. And we went there and did a research project on big tigers uh, back around 2010 or 11. And um, when they went to make it a park, which was about seven or eight years later, they were going to make the boundaries of the park three miles around this archipelago. 
but then they went uh, they went with them with our data on the tiger sharks, the apex predator, the balance keeper of the park. They went on a 27 mile foraging uh, run every night offshore. So they expanded the park out to 30 miles. So this is how our da our data our data gets used all the time like that all over for this corridor that they're talking about putting together between Cocos Island and the Galapagos Island. A lot of that data is from our animals down there because we have the most accurate modern technology tracking these animals for the first time ever now more and more people are trying to leverage them particularly on smaller sharks they can handle you know um so uh i forgot what we were talking about man but that's how the data works you know the, the tags right but the the really cool stuff is also the stuff the tags just tell you where they are all the other projects, a suite of about 20 other projects, they tell you what they're doing, where they are, what they're eating, where they are, what their toxicological makeup is, because these are the indicators of our ocean health, right? White sharks are bioaccumulators. So that means they're at the top of the food chain. So a little fish eats a piece of plastic or eats something small, a little critter, and then it gets eaten by a bigger one and it goes into the next animal and into the next animal. And by the time you get to the white shark, it is accumulating all the toxins and all the bad stuff from the region it lives in because it is the apex predator. So you can catch a white shark and understand its toxicological profile and understand the basic health of the ocean from Newfoundland to the Gulf of Mexico. With just some blood samples and tissue yeah, samples? Yeah, blood samples and tissue samples, right? So we have all of that toxicological work going. We have a human health program where we're taking um, bacteria off these animals and developing new antibiotics for humans because it's a novel source, right? You think of a species that's been evolving for 400 million years. It's had chance to evolve way further than we have. Like it's super efficient. There's almost no parts they don't use. We still have parts we don't use, right? And uh and, and the bacterial colony on them has had the same opportunity, hmm. right? So this is a novel source of, of bacteria for new antibiotics to help us in an era where we need novel sources. Wow. Um, and then there's a whole reproductive thing going on where we, you know, we're looking at the sperm of the males in the microscope, we're getting their blood and getting the testosterone of the male, the estrogen of the female to zero in on where they're mating, you know, and then the ultrasounds of their ovaries and all this other stuff that tells you what they're doing where they are. So that like, you're right here. Yeah. Oh, well, they're mating right there, right? This is primary foraging and they're eating seals and they're eating cod or whatever. And down in the South, they're eating crabs and they're eating menhaden and they're eating the odd dead whale, you know? So it's all the other stuff that when you weave it together with the tracking kind of for the first time gives you a picture of what their life is like. That's so cool. And, and that's sort of the, the most important information, right, is to protect those spawning areas, nursing grounds, and all that. It's all about the birthing site and the nursery and how the nursery expands, right? These animals are born four and a half feet, 45 pounds. The first year of their life, all these sharks off the East Coast in the Western North Atlantic, they're born in the New York, New Jersey bite in the like, late spring and early summer. They live there under all that menhaden and mackerel and squid, like the perfect place for an apex predator to drop off its pup, right? And they live there until the early winter when the water cools down. The first year of their life, they cruise as far south as South Carolina. Then when it gets hot again the following spring, they'll move north, but they'll stretch a little further north into Rhode Island. And then when it cools off, they'll push a little further south. By the time they're four years old, they're ranging all the way from Newfoundland to the Gulf, central Gulf of Mexico. Forge in four years. Now, this is a four and a half footer now is probably seven foot or something like that. These animals then have to do that and they're not sexually mature till they're 20 years old. Wow. 
So they got to live 20 years just to replace themselves. And then the females only give birth every other year because their gestation period is about a year, a little more. So they can only mate every other year. And when they give an average litter size of about eight pups, right? So there is no skyrocketing in numbers. It's kind of like a long, slow build because they got to live so long to replace themselves. But it completely helps, allows you to understand how in the 70s and 80s, we decimated them to nothing because they, they can't live 20 years yeah, to, to replace themselves, right? And so then when they're about 20, the males will keep moving up and down the coast. They're very coastal. Some are a little offshore, but these animals are kind of coastal and pelagic, but they're spent a lot of time on, you know, but they go wherever they want. And, uh, and then when the females are 20, we believe that those females are making this routine, you know, summer and fall up foraging in the north on the seals. Now, when they're bigger, once they're over about 10 foot long, and then they slide down to the south and they're overwinning primarily between Cape Hatteras and Cape um, Canaveral. When you look at the Gulf Stream and it comes up at Florida, it kicks off Canaveral and it kicks out to the northeast and then wraps around into Hatteras. And that, that Gulf Stream pins a cold body of water against the southeastern United States. That cold body of water is their primary winter habitat. And then about 50% of them will trickle south of Canaveral and wander into the Gulf of Mexico for two or three months and then come back. And we believe they're, they're you know, they're, we believe that they're kind of coming together and the peak of mating should be between now and May uh, in the lower Outer Banks area. Um, but anywhere really between Northeastern Florida and there, if they come across another shark on a, on a reef or whatever, it just seems like they start to move north. And, you know, Cape Hatteras is a faunal break, you know, a faunal break where a lot of animals only live above it and a lot of fish only live below it. Very few cross the faunal break, right? Um, and so they get pushed up against Hatteras because it's so cold just to the north in Virginia that they're pushing up there trying to go around the corner to make their way back north. But it's, you know, they go around the corner and the temperature drops 15 degrees and then they kind of pile up there waiting for it to warm up. Mm. You know, and it seems like if you look at the tracker now and you look in that North Carolina, South Carolina area, you'll see, you know, there's sharks. Yeah, they're sprinkled around Florida and up into the Gulf, but there's a pile of them right there, you know, and they're, they're kind of having to make that way to get ready to go north when it's time and maybe mating just prior to that. That's what that's what we think. And that's why our next expedition is out of Wrightsville Beach, uh, North Carolina and Moorhead City and uh, Ocracoke in that region there. That's crazy. And do you find they mostly, the big ones travel sort of alone, right? Or in small grouping? Yeah, they, they, we, they move alone, but it's like similar timing. So these got these animals, what's completely mind blowing about these animals when we started and you ask about things and I take it for granted. Now, these animals know exactly where they are. They know exactly where they're going and they know what the date is. So their lives are incredibly synced up with the moon. Like we'll see these animals off the same boots, the same beach at the same moon phase year over year on a black drum run. They're always on an event, which a lot of times, you know, are synced up with the moon. The fall and the spring equinox, I think are huge triggers for these animals. I believe the spring equinox is what triggers like, oh, the days are getting longer. Maybe it's time to mate. Maybe it's time to think about heading north. Right. When the fall equinox is the same. Oh, it's time to start thinking about heading south. So these animals on the same moon phase year over year at the same spots, they're going like, you know, from the same location in Cape Breton to the 
right past the same island in the Bahamas and up the coast to the same beach in North Carolina year after year after year. Mm. Uh, so their capacity to navigate and their calendar and sense of timing is, I think, really been probably the most kind of outrageous observation that you would never have. There's no wandering around. No, they're on a, they're on a program. <laughs> they know where they're going and they know what they're doing and they know why. It's wow. that's that's been pretty stunning. And you guys have obviously caught a lot of other species of sharks. And you know, one thing we're seeing here in Florida, and I'm sure a lot of people say this to you in your travels and stuff, it's like we've seen a boom in a lot of shark populations down here inshore, especially on wrecks and reefs, and mm -hmm. you're fishing, and as soon as you lose one fish to a shark, you're like, you have to move. There's just a lot of sharks. What is your answer to guys who, you know, are like, ah, oh, there's too many sharks in the water? Well, that's just what it's like in the Galapagos Islands or at Cocos Island or at Ningaloo Reef. That's what it's like when you're in a great wild virgin ocean. And what I think people sometimes don't understand, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, you couldn't catch redfish. You couldn't catch a snook. There was, no, there was, there was no stripers off of Montauk. There was no white marlin. There was no sailfish in your kayak off Miami. You know, there, there, was, there was no fish, man. I grew up fishing there, full speed, Marco Island through the 70s and the 80s. And, um, and when, they cal when, when, um, when the state of Florida uh, introduced the, the gillnet ban, and then when it, it trickled up and down the East Coast in the late 80s, early 90s, NOAA and a lot of the state managers, they wanted to bring back the recreational fishing economy because nobody was buying boats, man. Nobody was going fishing. They didn't need a truck because you couldn't catch. And that was the whole East Coast all the way down into Florida. And so in an effort to bring back that recreational fishing economy, they got most all the gillnets out of the inshore waters across the eastern seaburn down into Florida. There's still some gillnet fisheries in a few places, but uh, I think it's as reasonably well managed as you can do with a gillnet. This is a funny story because it relates back to the white shark. When they removed the gillnets off of Long Island in Jersey to bring back the striped bass, unbeknownst to ourselves, they removed the gillnets from the white shark birthing site. And that's why 20 years later, we started to see white sharks at Cape Cod. Huh. No one even they, knew? or did They, they were all getting whacked in the gillnets like right when they were born. Their whole first four months of their lives, it was like heavy gillnetting, you know, and no one knew. I mean, you know, I'm sure some people knew, but no one talked about it. Um, and that's that's how it's been, and that's okay. Um, they probably didn't even know when you see these little baby white sharks, you know, they look like whatever, a little baby Mako or whatever. Um, and so um, the, then that was in the late 80s, early 90s. And then, the, you know, the, the slot limit comes into play with the redfish, right? And then it trickles across into the snook. And now you have the power of time. And 30 years later, then around 1990, our shark populations were decimated because they have to live so long to replace themselves. And so they started protecting and managing back sharks. And so what you have now that's occurring is you're basically in the middle of the rewilding of, the, of, Flor of Florida and the entire Atlantic seaboard. There are more fish there now than there's been since the 40s and the 50s. People are seeing things now that we haven't seen from the 40s and 50s. And so a couple things developed during that period of time. So in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, we got this highly compromised ocean system. There was like no apex predators. We're losing our reefs where all sorts of trickle down is happening. We don't even understand because of it. 
And so at the time, suddenly it becomes fashionable to try to see who can catch a fish on the lightest line possible as a measurement of skill. And the whole, the whole kind of evolution of light tackle angling kind of begins to unfold in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. And it was about, you know, who can catch the fish on the lightest piece of tackle. That was a, a, a way to interpret a level of skill or to keep record line classes and things. Well, that, I think what people didn't understand at the time, and it was their normal because it was what they were doing every day, light tackle fishing and that sort of activity is really only successful in highly compromised systems. Light tackle, let me say that again, light tackle fishing is really only highly successive, highly successful and highly compromised systems because there's no predators. So you can play fish for 30 or 40 minutes and you can not put any drag on them, catch them on two pound or four pound or six pound, takes a long time. You end up killing the fish, but you can do it, right? Um, but in, an in a healthy ocean system, like the Galapagos or the Cocos or pick a place, I'll, I'll be happy to chat with you. I've, been, had a, I've had a fair good run at a few cool spots. If you're not catching a fish on extremely heavy tackle very fast, you're sharked because the ocean is wild and balanced. It is sharky. A virgin ocean is the sharkiest thing you've ever seen in your life. There is no waste. There is no waste. And, uh, and because those sharks are there, everything behaves, right? So you end up with more fish at every level because one level is not putting too much pressure on another level and everything, the presence of those animals creates a balanced system. So for example, the white sharks, when they're up, up in the Northeast, we got our marine mammals coming back, right? From 50 yeah. years ago, the marine mammal seals just moving down the coast, right? Reestablishing their historic range, which I believe is gonna, could go as far south as the Carolinas. Right now, they're just kind of passing through Jersey. Uh, but wasn't that long ago, they were only in the Cape, you know? And then they show up at Montauk and there's one or two and now they're at Montauk like there and now they're just one or two moving. They keep pushing as they grow. It, we know that when white sharks are present, just one white shark swimming up and down a beach full of seals, those seals eat one fourth as much per day just because of the presence of the white shark. It's like the lion walking up out in the plane. The deer are not going to come out and over forage the plane if the lion is walking around. So they're forced to only eat at night, which allows the plane to grow <laughs> and not get wiped out, right? So the, the white sharks moving up and down the beach, the seals are waiting until they're almost starving. They go eat a little bit, they get back out. One, one white shark's keeping thousands of seals. If that white shark's not there, we know that every one of those seals eats four times more per day which is killing all the bait and everything. But then, then they go and they wipe out the cod. They wipe out the stripers. They wipe out the menhaden. They wipe out the lobsters. There's no fish. Yeah. So you need and that policeman kind of. They are the, the wildest water. thing about this situation when it comes to the anglers because of the lack of the understanding is yeah. that the very thing they're complaining about is actually the guardian of their fish stock. All of those sharks, like when you're down there in places like Florida that are moving around every night when the squid try to migrate up and come in, those sharks keep the squid down. If those sharks aren't there, those squid come in and they eat all the fry. They eat all the baby tarpon, all the baby bonefish, all the baby everything. And then there is none to grow up for us to either play with or to catch and consume. So it's, it's, uh, the re so they're getting sharked, right? And, and they've had, and they've been, they've grown up in this compromised system where they could fish with light tackle. And they could fish wherever they wanted. 
And that really is only possible in a compromised system. So as we rewild the system and we're getting the system as wild again, like, you know, they're not complaining about having to run far to get a bite. They're not complaining about the number of bites they get. It's the sharks. It's they're getting sharked, right? So they're getting more bites closer to home because the aggregate abundance of the system has skyrocketed. But now the challenge as an angler is you have to adapt. You have to adapt. I mean, you, you have to, you have to go to heavier gear. You got to learn when the fish are on that wreck. Maybe it's synced up with the moon and when they're not. So you know which few days of the month you can go strike there and where you have to go another time. You have to be a fisherman. The idea, and I'm not going to riff on this too much, but the idea that an angling community would request that we compromise the system to accommodate their method of fishing, I think is something they haven't thought through. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm curious what the response from, you know, these salty dudes is that are complaining about losing red snapper or something when you say I think most of them get it when you do that. I mean, look, they love the ocean too. You know, it's just inconvenient. And we see it a lot, you know, when you, this is just how it is. This is no judgment around this. When you have people who fish out of the same spot every year, all year, they go to the same spots, they do the same thing. And then when that gets disrupted by the rewilding of the ocean, there's a problem. Yeah. No, there's no problem. The problem is, is you can't go to the same spot and do the same thing anymore. You have to adapt. You have to be a fisherman. So if you're a fisherman who fishes all over the world all the time, and you have to figure out every system when you come into it on your own, that's just like your normal operating mode. Oh, we can't fish here. It's too sharky. We're bouncing over here. I mean, that's just normal, <laughs> you know, but, but if you've been conditioned or trained to be able to go to the same spot and do the same thing and be successful, and then the ocean begins to rebound and it's no longer a highly compromised system, you're going to bump into a whole lot of things that you haven't bumped into before. And you have two choices. You can either adapt and overcome, or you can complain. Yeah. Wow. But the idea of the, the ideas of, of requesting that we compromise the system to accommodate an angling method or technique. I think if anyone thinks that through and they truly want to ask that question, it's not going to work out for them in the end. Well said. I, I think you cleared that up very well. <laughs> <laughs> so this next trip, when do you guys take off on that? Is you pretty much you must be getting uh, ready to go. April seventeenth to May fourth. Oh, you know, it's a, so it's just about a month or so, a few weeks away, a couple weeks away. Really hard now on Brett. You know, when we started this, the, the project on the East Coast, the, the scientists said they wanted 100 sharks. You know, and everybody like that. There never been one, right? Uh, so everyone thought that was impossible. So we're on 88 right now. Wow. And so, uh, but the problem is, is the last 12, you know, at first they would be any white shark he caught. They were super stoked, right? You know, any data, because it's all new. But now they're like, we would like a mature male and a mature female from this particular area of the world during this particular month, you know, so that we can fill in this data gap. So these last 12 are super important and really hard. Like we might have to catch 30 to get the right 12, you know, so it's been really challenging to not only, you know, it used to be hard just to try to find white sharks. Now we're trying to find mature males and mature females amongst white sharks and that is getting, you know, that's a test, a proper test. Wow. Well, if there's anybody who can do it, it's you guys. So Yeah, Brett, you know, Brett, it's time. What you really need there is weather. It's hard to get a bunch of good weather to really build on. You know, you get a day or two and you get blown off and, and so forth. So if we get some good weather, that, that seems to be the difference. And if he has time on the water, we'll, we'll end up in the, on the fish in the right spot. 
That's great. Well, Chris, it was so fun to talk to you. Thank you for being so generous with your time. I know you're a busy guy. And um, and hey, you know, much love to all my angling brothers out there. <laughs> I, I, I hope everyone can appreciate just straight talk. Look, I think we can. And, and, I, and, and look, it's really like we should be the people driving this effort forward. We love it the most. 100%. Like, like, like we, and, and if we can get ourselves into a common vision with a reasonably selfless disposition and prioritize the path that we need to move things toward abundance for both recreational, commercial, and, you know, aggregate abundance with the players and the corporations in the space and the professionals making a living in the space, turning people onto the ocean, taking them out, along with those people who want to come and be on the water and embrace it and what their children do, we should be the community that is driving the ocean toward abundance, not the academic community, not the government. I mean, I think if you think about that for a second, you'll be like, oh, that makes sense. Like, you know, if we want to, and we have, the, we have a vested interest in it, not only personally for what we love and for what our families, but many of the companies, it's their future market. Yeah. You're not, like you said earlier, you're yeah. not going to sell boats. You're not going to sell tackle and all that stuff if the fishery goes. Right. So if we have the right leadership that can rise up in the space, you know, kind of the Glenn Hughes of the world, the Yamahas, you know, the um, Martin. Martin you know, the Martin Peters, th there is a real opportunity to pull these brands together with the angling expertise and the equipment and the passion of the people to take the science in the ocean space so far beyond where it's gone so much faster. It's like a layup. It's just a matter of trying to get people on a common vision with a selfless disposition. So we just prioritize what everyone needs, see what the most urgent thing is, attack that. That means you might have to play second fiddle, but it will get done. It just might be a few years versus you battling on your own and it'll never get done because everyone's battling on their own and they have no scale and they got no strategy. And that's why we're getting smoked by the commercial lobby. Yeah. You know? And well, so anyways, I, I just, I hope I can inspire fishermen to like take ownership, balance your relationship with the water. Give her what she gives you. That's a great message. And, 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 and if that happens, we will be proud of what we leave behind. I'm with you. I'm with you. And we, we try to do that in the Angler's Journal, too. I mean, it's why we write about fly fishing and offshore trolling and everything in between, because we have that shared yeah. passion. Well, and you got a legendary brand, man. Pedigree. Working on it. Working on it. We. I would love to do more with you guys. It's been so fun talking to you, and I really believe in the work you're doing. And truth be known, I've had a bit of a man crush on Brett since I met him in <laughs> Brett Hall show years ago. That guy's a stud. And you, you know, the, you should come on out on the ship. Oh, that come would be out. cool. Yeah, that's easy. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, all Good the best. Good luck on the next trip. Take care. Everybody out there, enjoy your time on the water. Take your kids. Yeah.